count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Okay, so last week, if last week was a bit more historical information, uh, this week is going to be a little bit more language information of helping somewhat define these terms. And then we're going to have a discussion uh, at the at the last half. So just real quick, the, the very first part, James uh, 1, 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Easy. Totes. Joy. Um, obviously, if James is saying have joy in trials, he means something more than happiness or pleasure or enjoyment. Uh, but James is talking with this word joy, and we're going to come back to this at the end, but James is talking about a deep eschatological or forward end times kind of looking joy. And I like to think of joy as a mixture of happiness and hope. Okay? Does that kind of give some decent definition. It's not just happiness, it's not just hope, it's kind of the, the combination of those two, just a way that I think about it. Um, joy, we'll come back to that word. Trials. Consider it, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of many kinds. Now, we're going to, in the coming, like a, a few weeks from now, we're going to look at three words that are very similar that James uses. Trials, tests, temptations. That all kind of seem like those not only I'll start with T, but they're similar in some ways. Trial, test, temptation. Um, and we're going to look at how, how are those used in Scripture and how does James use them. Uh, but we'll, we get two of those in our passage today, trials and uh, testing in the next verse. Trial is, the, the Greek word that's used here is a neutral kind of word. The, the mood or the tenor of the word is neutral, uh, meaning that it depending on how it's translated, it might have a negative connotation or it might actually have a positive connotation. So a negative connotation, um, oftentimes this word, the same Greek word is translated temptation oftentimes. And for example, it's when, it's what Jesus went through, it's what Satan did to Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. That's a, it's, it, we read temptation, I think, in Matthew and Mark, but it's, it's the same word, trial. And so obviously that, that's a negative connotation. He was being tempted by the devil. That's a word trial. It also can have a positive. So depending on the context, it can be positive. It was a common Jewish idea in the Old Testament times that trials were given by God. Like it was good to receive a trial. So, um, and sometimes that's translated test. So the first kind of major time we see that in the Old Testament is Abraham when God calls him to sacrifice his son, Isaac. And we read in Genesis 22:1, he said, after these things, God tested Abraham. And the, the Greek word that translates the Hebrew is, is the same uh, as, we, as trial that we're reading in James 1, 2 here. So the word itself is kind of neutral, uh, but depending on how it's used, it can go either way, positive or negative. Now, trials, obviously, are always negative in the sense that they are unexpected. Like we, um, when, it's, when James says, 
when you meet trials, he literally is saying when you fall into trials, like, oh, I didn't see that coming kind of a thing. So they're unexpected and they're unwelcome. It's not like we're just, yes, this is a trial. I can't, I'm, I'm excited to walk into this. So it's something that's difficult. It's unexpected, it's unwelcome, but it's not necessarily unfavorable. And so that's kind of, we're gonna move into that idea here in a little bit. Trials, if you're maybe thinking through in your mind, do I have trials? Um, have I had trials? Will I have trials? They can be, I, I really think that James is describing here anything big or small that we fall into that's unwelcome or unexpected and is something difficult that comes against us. It can, it's called various trials. James calls it that. That means multicolored trials, like trials of various kinds. It can be something that is internal, like a struggle of, man, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling this trial and I'm drawn to, to the sin. That could be a trial, or it could be external, like persecution. That's a trial, something that's happened to you. It can be emotional, physical, spiritual, just trials. James is saying, consider those joy. So in verse 2, we learn that somehow in the life of a person of faith, trials are somehow good in the fact that they should produce in us joy. Okay? How is that? We're going to find a little bit out by looking on here. So, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So here's another word, different Greek word, testing. Testing shows a positive use of the word trial. Different words, but a test is generally a good trial that you have come upon. Um, just to, again, tonight's kind of just defining some terms, but to test means to approve or just to prove. If you think about it, like we take tests and it, it proves what we know or what we've, we've obtained. Um, the idea of a test, as we look at it in the New Testament, or this particular word, is that it's, it's generally, it's meant to reveal something good in us. Like with Abraham, when it, God tested Abraham, it was meant to reveal his genuine faith. It wasn't meant to show Abraham as an unfaithful person. Most uh, tests even that we take, it's like we have the intent, we go into it to, to pass or to prove competence in something. So I'm, I'm taking it, I'm, I'm going to take this test to be a certified financial planner because I want to prove that I'm qualified to, to do so. Um, oftentimes, you guys probably know this, but the, the word test relates or is thought of oftentimes in terms of metals, testing metals or purifying or refining gold, silver. In Zechariah 13.9, um, it says, I will put this third, I think the remnant of Israel, I will put them into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. Then they will call upon my name and I will answer them and I will say, they are my people. And they will say, I am, or they will say, the Lord is my God. So a testing in that case is going to prove who those people belong to after the test. Prove to who? Prove to God? Not, probably not so much as prove to them or prove to the people around them. In the New Testament, we read in Peter, 
So the tested genuineness of your faith, your faith is tested, and your faith is more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, and it's tested to be genuine so that it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. So, test. You have this proving that's going to show something, but it's not only that, according to James, the test is not only meant to prove you, whether you belong to God or what you're like, but the test itself, if you look at verse 3, it produces something. So it's not just proving something, but it's producing something in you, and that, in this case, he's saying it produces steadfastness. So remember, tests, James is saying that tests don't only prove, they produce. It's showing something, but it's also doing something, okay? Um, and I'll kind of talk about what I mean with that in talking about the word steadfastness. It's the next term. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Maybe the NIV or other versions, they say um, endurance or perseverance, right? Some synonyms for steadfastness. So the test of our trials is not only meant to prove something, to prove maybe the status of our faith, but to produce steadfastness. So if you run a 5K, maybe you're doing it to show to show to yourself or maybe to other people that you can run that in 29 minutes or under or whatever and that's going to that's going to prove something but at the same time in running it it's also producing endurance it's doing something in you and it's going to make you able to better run the 5k next time right so it's proving and producing something in you so it's not just god saying let me prove something to you but i'm using this to produce something in you. And in this case, I'm using a trial or a test to produce steadfastness. And the more I run, the more I can run, and the stronger I get. Sometimes, I don't know about y'all, but when you feel tested or when you're going through a trial, you think, how many times does this type of thing have to happen? Like, does God not believe or does he not think that I believe that I will be faithful to him like why does this additional thing have to happen to me and it may not be because God is just continually trying to prove the same thing God is wanting to say you I'm I'm doing something in you through this okay um you don't it, I think that makes sense there's there's also in that word steadfastness a, an expectancy of something to come. So it doesn't just mean endurance, like I'm going to just buckle down, but it means waiting in patience. Sometimes that word is translated patience. You might have a version of this very verse that translates it patience. Um, I think steadfastness makes a little more sense here. But it's, it still has that idea of it's expecting something better. And later in the book of James, we're going to see several times James is going to talk about the return of Christ and they're waiting for this hope. And so that's, again, reason why, um, or this is just putting reasoning behind the trials and how we can persevere through them. So if you think about it, and move on to the last couple of terms, steadfastness 
or perseverance, that's, we see that as good, right? It's generally a good characteristic to have those things. Those cannot be had as a person apart from the trials. You cannot develop a character of steadfastness or loyalty or perseverance if nothing difficult comes up against you. There's kind of something to think of. Like, how do you know if somebody is loyal? Well, something bad happens, and then they stick with it through a difficult time. So it, it's not just... God wants to use this test to prove something in you. And it's not just he wants to use this to produce endurance in you, but it goes on. God's goal isn't just simply for us to get through this life. We just have to endure so that we can get to the end and that's it. But steadfastness leads to something else. And that's what we read in the last verse. Steadfastness, let steadfastness have its full effect or its perfect effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So what's the end goal of steadfastness, which is one of the goals of a test, which is a trial, but to be perfect and complete. So real quick, perfect, I think that the, um, most oftentimes that word is translated in the English, it's an idea of being mature or being grown up. Okay? Uh, 1 Corinthians 14.20, Paul says, brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature or be perfect. It's the same word. So this idea of mature, this is what steadfastness is going to, the end result of it is going to be maturity or, or, or perfection in that, in, in a, it's, it's the end game of what a child is. You grow up and you're finally an adult. And complete, which complete isn't the idea of that process so much as the idea of a, a sound something, like it's, something is whole. Um, we're saying in this series, we're kind of calling the book of James, it's about single-mindedness, or the Bible Project, if you watch the video on James, it talks about how we are, we're a fractured people until God um, makes us whole, complete. So we have kind of these two different ideas. I think that we take we see perfect and complete and, and synonyms like that in the New Testament. And what we do is we place those ideas in the past or in the future. We place them in the past saying, Jesus, because of his death on the cross, I, God sees me as perfect because he's seen Jesus. Okay, that's, that's partially true. And we say, and in the future, I will be made perfect. Like when I'm with Jesus, then I will... Uh, no longer have sin and I'll be whole and complete in those things. We see it as this is a past work that God's done. He kind of sees me this way, but eventually I will be that way. And I, um, in studying this passage and these words this past week, I am realizing that the more we restrict the idea of perfect and complete wholeness and maturity to something in the past that God has done and something in the future that God will do, and we kind of remove the present experience of that perfecting and being made whole, then our trials become meaningless or purposeless. So uh, just to kind of expand on that a little bit, sanctification. Sanctification uh, is 
is this idea that the Bible talks about of being set apart or being made holy. Or I think the simplest way of sanctification for us is to become more like Christ. Or to eventually, when we see him, we'll, we'll, we'll see him as he is, so we'll be like him. So sanctification is this process of becoming like Christ. There are past elements to sanctification. We call that, at least since the Reformation, we call that justification. And then there's a future, when we're seen as, as righteous and perfect, then we there's a future element of sanctification where the Bible says we will be saved. Christ is going to return and he's going to save us. And that future element, when we're made perfect, is oftentimes called glorification. And in sanctification terms, that's positional sanctification. My position before God is this way. Um, future or... Uh, uh, I can't think of the term, ultimate, maybe sanctification. But then in the middle of all that, you have progressive sanctification, which um, just to, so that I'm clear on things, the, the past or positional sanctification um, verses that talk about that are like Hebrews when it talks about that Christ was once and for all. He was he, he perfected once and for all those who were being sanctified. So that was a work that he did. Future glorification or ultimate sanctification. 1 John 3 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. So that's perfection, Christ-likeness there. But present, progressive sanctification, I think, is what we're getting at in the, in the first few verses of James here. Some places in scripture where this comes up to help us round it out is we all, Paul says, with unveiled face, beholding, this is us now, we have unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That's a process that we're in right now, we're being transformed. Colossians, Paul says, you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. It's a current process. God is renewing our minds and our hearts. Also in Colossians, he says, God, we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why are we teaching them? That we may present everyone mature or perfect in Christ. So we're teaching people, Paul says, in order that when, when it's time to be presented to Christ, there's a sense of maturity when we get to that point. So God is in the process right now of making us perfect and complete. He is perfecting us. Jesus is called the, the perfecter of our faith. Um, without studying that passage in particular, I'm not... Don't quote me on that because I'm not sure that's the sense of the word perfect there. But, um, but this, is, this is the goal of Christ, that we would be made mature and complete in him. Um, and if that's his goal in us, we should also share that goal. We should want the same thing for ourselves. And so all this to say, when we restrict the words perfect and complete to something, well, God did that and eventually God's going to do that, then our present trials, like I said, become meaningless or they become purposeless because our trials are actually meant to bring about steadfastness, which has its full effect so that we will be perfect and complete. Does that make sense? 
we don't want to like throw out this process that God is doing because that's actually a good chunk of the purpose of the reason that we're walking through trials. I may be wrong here, but I think that we have a hesitation as Christians when we talk about perfection, understandably. Um, but there is nothing wrong, I think, with some caveats, I'll mention a couple, of aiming for perfection. For us, perfection means to be like Christ. Okay? That's the perfect version. That's the, Christ was the perfect man. And so in order to be perfect men and women, we would be like Christ. That's perfection. The caveats, of course, um, none of us are perfect. None of us can claim to be perfect, John tells us. None of us will even be perfect until the return of Christ or until we're with him. Um, but James's goal for the people that he's writing and Paul's goal for the people that he's writing and John's goal for the people that he's writing are that he would, he would be able to teach them and so that they would mature, so that they would grow up, so that they would become complete. They're heading in the direction of perfection. Okay, That's the trajectory that these writers of Scripture want us on. So I think we should strive for it. We should strive for perfection in the sense that James is talking about perfection. I'll read a, a couple of verses with a similar thing in mind. Philippians 2, do all things without grumbling or disputing. This is Paul saying, here's how you should live right now. Do things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent Children of God without blemish, this is all perfection language, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. So right now, here and now, I want you to do these things, stop arguing, disputing, and grumbling, because you should be blameless and innocent children of God and shine as lights in the world. So that blameless, that innocence is something that Paul wants for the Philippians now. Obviously, it's not the full extent of that, but it's a goal. Peter talks about it. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, it's the new heaven and the new earth he's talking about, until then, he says, be diligent to be found without spot or blemish. Try to live in a way that is without spot or blemish. Paul talks about this pretty extensively in Philippians 1. This is maybe the famous sanctification verse. I'm sure of this, he says, that he who began a good work in you, as past tense, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Bring it to completion, that's the way that our ESV says it. Almost every other translation, I think, maybe says it better. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. So the idea of that perfectingness that's happening right now in us and then when Christ returns, it's finalized all of a sudden when we're with them. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. Philippians 1.9, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more, there's work that he's doing, with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent, listen, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, that's important, to the praise of God. That's important. That's where it's coming from. James is going to talk a lot about that. The good things that we have are actually from God. It's not us popping them out. And listen to how not only does Christ have 
a goal of sanctification for people. It's a work that Jesus is doing, but Paul is working towards that himself. Uh, chapter 3, verse 12 through 15 of Philippians. Paul is talking about righteousness that comes by faith. Um, in verse 12, he says, not that, I've already, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect. Okay, there's our same word. Paul says, I'm not already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in God in Christ Jesus. And then listen to what he says. I love this. Not he, he kind of talks down a little bit. Let those of us who are mature or perfect, let those of us who are mature think in such a way that we're striving for that end goal, which is Christ's likeness and Christ himself. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if any of you think otherwise, God will also reveal that to you. And so you'll, you'll figure it out eventually. It's Paul's goal for himself. It's our goal for others. Um, Paul says in Colossians that Epaphras has been struggling for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured of the will of God. Like this is what Epaphras wants for you. He's praying that you would be matured in your faith. Paul says, him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone perfect or mature in Christ. So um, I know it's hard like for us maybe to separate this idea of perfection from growing up post-Reformation. I think probably in a lot of our backgrounds, it's hard to separate perf the idea of perfection from works-based righteousness. Mm -hmm. Like I have to be perfect for God to accept me. It's not what we're talking about here. But there is a work that God is doing right now for those of us who believe in perfecting us, even on this side of heaven, and we should be, according to Paul, striving for the same thing, the same goal that Christ has for us, which gives purpose then to our trials because that is something that is leading to our being perfect and complete. If you see the line of reasoning that Paul uses in the passage. So just to end, to tie this back into the beginning, if we want maturity and wholeness or Christ-likeness, we should receive trials with joy because that's part of the road of becoming fully like Christ. I'm not going to read a bunch of passages from Hebrews, but we see that Jesus, the perfect man, faced trials. Uh, Hebrews 2 says he was made perfect. Jesus was made perfect through suffering. Wrap your mind around that one. Hebrews 4 says Jesus was tempted in every way. That's trial. Jesus had trials in every way. Hebrews 12 says, let us then run with endurance. That's the same word that, that James is developing here. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, this is what Jesus did, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So going back to that first word, joy. Remember, joy is like happiness mixed with hope. I love what Peter says. Beloved, do not be surprised 
at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you or to trial you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice or have joy insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. When Christ is glorified, when we see Christ glorified, we too will be glorified. So in that verse, if you see what Peter's saying there, he's like, of course you're going to have trials. You're going to have fiery trials, like intense. How else will you become like Christ? So rejoice. And in Hebrews, I mean, that writer even says something like, hey, you haven't even, you haven't suffered like Jesus did. You're not bleeding yet. But, I mean, most people. Um, so God is making us to be like Jesus through trials, through testing, and we won't come, become like Jesus without them something that is only developed through those things. So trials, I think how we can think about it, our trials are a means to an end. They're happening for a good purpose. Satan, we'll talk about in a couple weeks, wants to use those to tempt us to evil and to respond wrongly. God may be using them to prove and and provide in, and produce in us endurance. So some things we ask when we hear trials, what did I do to get this trial? Like, why do I deserve this? Well, not necessarily anything. I love what uh, Jesus says, the, the whole vine and branches analogy. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Check this out. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Obviously. Okay, fine. We, that, we don't have a problem with that. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Like the good fruit-bearing branches, he prunes. Why? That it may bear more fruit, right? So if, if there is a, a trial, say, that's coming to our life, maybe to kind of mix metaphors here, it's not that we have necessarily done something wrong. Maybe, maybe we have, and it's a form of kind of discipline or whatever, but, but it, that doesn't necessarily mean to be the case. God might be wanting to produce in us some more kind of fruit. Sometimes also, just a little side note, we, we are, I hear in trials people asking, myself asking, what specifically is God wanting to teach me in this? And I think that's perfectly fine. I think God probably does want to teach us in our trials, and he does. He certainly can teach us things. But what if God is not only teaching you, but wanting to build in you endurance, which is a way that you become complete like Christ? So the trial is happening, James is saying, for a good purpose, that we would be whole, that we would be mature, that we'd be complete like Jesus. So I think that God isn't necessarily in a trial waiting to teach you a lesson. He may be wanting to produce a new perseverance. I'll just end with a William Barclay quote. I thought this was pretty good. Trials are not meant to make us fall but make us sore. They are not meant to defeat us, but to be defeated. They are not meant to make us weaker, but make us stronger. So if trials are making me mature and whole and strong like Jesus, then yes, I receive them with joy. <laughs>